Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH, 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. You, have you ever heard the saying, uh, you know, there's two seasons, there's uh, winter and construction? <laughs> yeah, I live in North Dakota. We pray for road construction just to give us something to look at as we drive down the interstate. It's flat. It's uh, it's something like that for me around here, except it's winter and it's yard work. Well, I hear that. So as before you get out into your yard and go do yard work, I hear something very exciting transpired on the inside of your house. Yeah, so I wanted to give an update on the home automation stuff. I've had a few people kind of ask me to follow up on it. So I've kind of long been complaining about my journey with Zigbee, and I'm I'm on my last stick, as it were. I'm on my fifth or sixth Zigbee controller, and I got a new one a couple of weeks ago, the Sonoff Zigbee 3, and I thought I would give an update. So it's I've had it for about... I want to say three or four weeks at this point. And largely things are looking pretty good. I had a a really bumpy time integrating with it because I was using Zigbee to MQTT on Home Assistant and it's supposed to be supported there. And one of the things that I read was that you can migrate your database. You still have to repair all of your devices, but the device ID should stay the same. So I spent four or five hours trying to get that to work and I kept running into problems and I started... I should have done this earlier in the day, started looking at, at deeper into the debug logs to figure out what was happening. And it turns out that the Zigbee to MQTT add-on would just not turn on when I specified the Sonoff stick. And so oh. I spent another two or three hours trying to get that to work before throwing my hands up and was like, well, I'm, I'm, I've already yanked out my old controller. My home automation has been down an entire day, at least the Zigbee stuff. You know, I need to get this working. So I just, I went to the ZHA plugin and clicked next, 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 essentially, and mm-hmm. everything came back online. So I still had to repair everything, but I burned an entire day trying to get this to work with Zigbee to MQTT. Now, I'm not sure if I have, like, I got a bad stick. Like, I'm, like it's supposed to be on the supported list of sticks there. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day... Um, you know, I got up and running and I've done two or three home assistant updates and one um, has OS update without any kind of problems. So the reboots previously, what was happening with every other stick that I'd have, the reboot would cause the Zigbee stick to drop off. And at whatever time the um, Zigbee plugin would try to initialize, it wouldn't find it. And then, of course, I would log into the VM and say, oh, well, I can see it there, but it just was never getting connected. And so it would take manual intervention for me to go and restart things properly. So that was the problem that seems to have finally been solved. So to be clear, the thing where your stick was dropping off and you bought the new one and you were like, this is the last time, if this doesn't work, I'm throwing in the towel to open source and all all of that, it worked. 
it did in fact work. Uh, I had one or two little hiccups, like for whatever reason, my thermostat dropped off the network at one point in the middle of the night, which was inconvenient because everybody was cold. Uh, <laughs> but aside from that, it seems to have gone okay. Uh, I did want to be fair to the Z-Wave stuff. So I've been running Z-Wave stuff for about six-ish years now, and I've never really had a problem. I've had a physical, one physical device die in that time. Okay. But recently, I had two different light switches drop off the network uh, out of about 60-odd Z-Wave devices. Uh, they repaired just fine, but I wanted to be fair about this. Uh, I figure I'd come on here and complain all the time about the Zigbee stuff dropping off. <laughs> I should at least mention when I have some similar experience with Z-Wave. But, you know, what I really liked about the Z-Wave stuff is because it's all, someone is forcing compliance. I can pull a manual for some unrelated product and the reset sequence is the same because it's the same standard applied across all of them. So everything came back up within, it took me all of two minutes to just go down and hit the key sequence to get the light switches back on. So hindsight being 2020, knowing what you know today, what would you tell somebody if they were going through this? If they were going to set up their starting from the beginning, what would you do differently, either by way of what equipment you're buying, how you're setting it up, what standards you would go with? Hmm. That's a good question, because part of the reason why I expanded into Zigbee was because the cost is there, like the cost savings is there. The You can get a, a motion sensor or a like a contact sensor for about roughly half the cost of the Z-Wave one. And so it's a really hard call. If I said, you know, if I was talking to somebody and they said, you know what, it's only going to be two or three things and I want as little hassle as possible, set it and forget it like my dad, I would absolutely go with Z-Wave. If, if it's, I'm redoing a whole house and I'm going to be getting 60 of these things. So every $10 that I save helps, mm -hmm. you know, you, maybe you're, worth looking at Zigbee like I seem to be one of the few people out there having problems with Zigbee you hear all these other people like you know matter and Zigbee and all of this sort of stuff never have any problems with it so mm -hmm. I don't know what's wrong with with my uh with my luck but maybe it's your attitude I'm just <laughs> kidding I'm kidding yeah. I'm kidding but I listen I'm glad you got it solved out I'm glad that you're at a point where you're no longer going to have to walk your wife through rebooting the box and re re uh reseeding the 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 device and i guess how long does it take you before you build confidence in in, in a new technology i know for me like if, if we're not 30 days in i don't have any trust in it and then the longer we go the more trust i have and eventually i get to a point where like i trust it like i trust my dog sort of a thing i'm like that thing is going to work because it's worked all the rest of it i know that's just esoteric but it takes a while honestly i still i still wake up every morning and i immediately check the is the thermostat still online <laughs> <laughs> um so I am still skeptical about the, the Zigbee stuff. I, I never think about the Z-Wave stuff. That's why when the when the light dropped off the network in my son's room, I actually thought it was a failure in my automation. I was like, oh, yeah. I've hit some sort of corner case and the automation didn't fire. Yeah, because um, Z-Wave doesn't fail. It never has failed. For, it, anytime that I've had some sort of problem, it was my automation. It wasn't that the device has dropped off. Whereas with Zigbee, it's complete opposite. As <laughs> soon as my wife says something didn't work, I'm like, ah, oh, I got to go look at the device. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck, Steve. Uh, continue to keep us up to date, would you? Absolutely. All right, let's dig into some feedback. Oops, wrong button. Not button. There we go. Hey, 
First email comes in today from Baku. Baku writes in and says, Hi guys, in episode 334, Matt asked about a journal application with encryption. Lifeograph fits the bill in my opinion and has everything Matt would want in a journal app. Noah, this one has a dark skin among other features among other features, and he links to lifeograph.sourceforge.net. If Matt is comfortable using command line application, then JRNL has everything one could hope for in a journal application, encryption sync, etc. JRNL.sh has all of the information that you'd need. Uh, if encryption is not that important to you, there are a couple of other diary apps that could be of use. And so one is lukesbriggs.dev slash project slash Pepe. And so we'll have links for all of these in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. The other one is Almana Diary. And so if Matt wants a browser-based journal app, then Monkey seems promising, though this one doesn't seem to be open source. And he links to Monkey, M-O-N-K-E-E.com. Regarding the ever-changing saga of TikTok and government in of my country, India has banned 267 apps with Chinese linkage. Any links to XDA developers, which goes into that. Some wise man once said politicians have never will and never will get two things right. Economics and technology. Censorship is not an answer to address privacy and security issues. The only answer to these two problems is education, which is like economics and technologies. Politicians never have and never will get this one right. Sadly, I appreciate you writing in um, Steve, your thoughts on do you have any thoughts on journal apps? No, I think we covered it last week. I appreciate that someone writing in because they covered mm. this, I think, a lot better than our, well, just, you know, GPG, a text file. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? That would work, though. Um, I tell you what, I'm going to check out jrnl.sh. I love doing stuff from the command line. The other thing I'm finding these days is as I move into my my uh, my uh, my rack of solace that is connected with nothing more than a power cord in the middle of a concrete room what i'm finding is things that i can ssh into make them really easy to put in the uh in 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 my little uh vacuum of a of a rack so interested in that so i'll be de- checking that out i appreciate you writing in with that our second email comes in from jim jim writes in and says hi guys on wednesday april 11 2023 the monthly meetup of the kentucky open source society a member made a presentation on how he's keeping his family recipes in a LibreOffice document in combination with his brother who uses microsoft word the kentucky-based member bill landley was converting documents using pandoc an open source document conversion software in order to run a text difference app so that he could gain the additions from his brother their mother has divided the family recipe cards between them I think I remember from a previous show where you talked about a software that you were using to keep track of family personal recipes. Could not find the mention of this name. Could you mention the product that you're using again? Also, is there a transcript of your shows? I would have searched there in order not to repeat show content. But I find your show is very useful training in the open source world. Thanks, Jim. So a couple of things. So we don't have a transcript, but we don't mind repeating questions. In fact, oftentimes the answers change. So it's 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 a, it's a it is a it's a it's a living breathing thing right like what i was using a few years ago even a few months ago sometimes a few weeks ago changes so it's it's always good if if when in doubt re-ask and we'll try and put that stuff in the show notes so that we have access to them so uh i'll start with where i'm at with it where i'm at with it is i use a, a software called gourmet and gourmet has been around for years it's a local open source app that runs on linux and things i like about it is a it's open source b it allows you to enter all of the ingredients 
and all of the recipes and all of the directions separately. And then you're able to create shopping lists based on the recipes that you know you're going to make that week. So you enter all the recipes that you have into the software and then you can go and say, I'm going to make that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. And then it generates your shopping list for the week and you can go out and buy groceries. For a long time, it wasn't maintained. Somebody has recently picked it back up and they're releasing updates again. And so that's what I continue to use to this day. But I am quickly looking towards switching to something called Tandoor. And Steve, you've played with Tandoor a little bit. You and your family decided it wasn't quite the right decision for you. But the thing I like about it is it's still open source, but it has a modern web UI. So I won't have to deal with maintaining or installing anything. The kitchen computer just becomes the conduit to access the recipe manager. The recipe manager can go live down on the virtual host. Yeah. So it's less that we didn't like it. And it was more that uh, the current process of putting the the stuff inside of a wiki is kind of really entrenched and so it's really hard to build up momentum when you have literal years worth of recipes in one thing and then you're looking at well do i just start greenfield or do i try and try and Mm. transfer my old stuff into this thing because of course what i like so what i like about tandoor is you can feed it a url for a lot of places online and it will scrape the recipes and it will also grab things like uh pictures and stuff like that and give you a description and break out all of your ingredients based on what you need and put it in a nice chart and all the rest of that it's really slick however as far as i can tell you can't point it at a local wiki like it because of the parsing engine that it needs to have Um, Unless I was going to offer to code that for these people, it's unlikely that I'd have an an easy way to transport stuff from from the old thing to the new thing. So you you would be suffering from this. It's going to take me hours to put stuff into the new thing or you'd have, well, which which platform does this live in? Does it live in the new one or the old one? Where was that recipe? And so for that reason. And that reason alone, we haven't really adopted it. Would you see yourself adopting it in the future if something, if if like your wife was like, hey, I'm potentially interested in, in moving to something else? Uh, yeah, I think so. But it would have to be a drive from her because essentially I don't really do much. I support with technology and that's as close to food preparation as I get. Because she's the one using it. She is the one using it. That makes sense. So I cook and I very much like having access to the recipes in part because a lot of them came from my family or family heritage. And so I'm, I'm interested in preserving them in a way that gives me access to all of them. So probably likely moving towards Tandoor uh, at some point in the future. But at the moment, I'm still on Gourmet. It still works fine, still does all the things I want it to do. So I'm, I'm very happy with it. But that that kind of hopefully that answers your questions or gives you a direction to go down. Lots of open source options out there. Um, and would certainly, I would think, would would uh, kick the bucket out of out of a word to, or out of a uh, LibreOffice doc. So, just thoughts there. Uh, our third email comes in from James. James writes in and says, "Hello, Noah and Steve. In episode three hundred thirty-two, you mentioned that the Unify U6 is a good AP with a great range. I see that there's a U6 Lite, U6 Pro, and U6 Long Range. Which model are you using specifically? I'm a fan of the show. Keep up the great work, Steve. Have you had any uh, experience with the new U6s, or are you still on the UAP Pros?" I'm on the UAP Pro still. So we've switched over at Ultraspeed over to the U, over to the U6s as we're installing them for places. And I have to tell you, it is it's almost night and day. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, works really really well. Um, essentially, what I would suggest is sticking with just the U6. The U6 Lite 
is a is a is is they they tried to dumb it down and 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 put uh, smaller radios and all the rest of it in. I've used them; they're okay. The long range one, I would tell you, is a complete ripoff. You the idea is supposed to be that you put this access point in and it talks out a longer a longer way. And to their credit, it has a more powerful radio and can speak out. The problem is. It can't hear out as far as it can speak. And so if you have a laptop and you're way on the other end of a, of a place, yeah, you can see the access point and yeah, you can try to connect to it. But if it can't hear your laptop, it can't negotiate and you have all sorts of weird connection problems. And I almost dislike that more than just a user saying, hey, I have a weak Wi-Fi signal. At least when the user reports a weak Wi-Fi signal, we know what to do. When somebody comes in and says, yeah, you know, I have full, full bars, but I click on it and the thing just sits spinning and says configuring interface. And then it just sits there and it doesn't do anything. That's a much more difficult problem to kind of troubleshoot and figure out. So for all of those reasons, I would tell you to stick with just the U6. Um, uh, anything else to add to that, Steve? Nope. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of April 23rd, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Valve has released Proton 8.0, which they claim is the biggest update that they've had. QEMU 8.0 has been released with new ARM and RISC-V features. This week has also seen a lot of distro releases. Fedora 38 has been released. Ubuntu 2304 has been released. Former Solus lead developer Joshua Strobel has announced that Solus has a new direction and will be rebased on Ike's Serpent OS. Tails 5.12 is out with its new persistent storage feature. Blend OS version 2 is now available. Chaos Linux celebrates 10 years with a new release. Manjaro 22.1 Talos is also out. And on top of all the distro releases, the Linux kernel 6.3 has also been released. 6.4 is already shaping up as well with two security updates. SE Linux will no longer have the ability to be runtime disabled, and it will now be possible to force the machine keyring to only store CA-enforced keys. The Linux Foundation has announced the launch of the TLA Plus Foundation to promote the adoption and development of the TLA Plus programming language. AWS, Oracle, and Microsoft are among the inaugural members. Cisco has announced three new open-source tools, VM Clarity, NASP, and Media Streaming Mesh that are all designed to add functionality for securing Kubernetes and cloud-native environments in general. System76 has updated three of its Linux laptop variants. Stability AI, the organization behind Stable Diffusion, has launched Stable LM, an open-source chat GPT alternative. Their 3 billion and 7 billion models are now available under a CC by SA 4.0 license. And in other AI news, Together, a Menlo Park, California-based company focused on building decentralized cloud and open-source models has announced Red Pajama. Its efforts began with the release of a 1.2 trillion token dataset that follows Facebook's Llama recipe. The data enables any organization to pre-train models that can be permissively licensed. The full dataset is available on Hug and Face, and users can reproduce results with Apache 2.0 scripts available on GitHub. OpenAI's GPT-4 language model is believed to be trained on 1 trillion parameters, while its predecessor, GPT-3, was trained on 175 billion parameters. And in security news, Pakistani hackers are using Linux malware called Poseidon to target Indian government agencies. New research has connected the infamous North Korean-aligned Lazarus Group to the 3CX supply chain attack. The Lazarus Group is most known for its Linux malware attack known as Operation Dream Job.
Veronics published a really excellent article on the new Flathub redesign. So if you've not been to flathub.org in the last week or so, I highly invite you to do that. They have redesigned their entire site and it looks fantastic. So the first thing that stands out to me is the opportunity for app discovery and app exploration. So you can click on explore and it gives you a list of categories as you might expect from your your uh, your app store something like that and then gives you links to all of the applications the other thing that i think is particularly fantastic and it's been true for a long time it's just now flathub is getting to a point where it's very user approachable there's a combination of both open source software and proprietary software. So whether you're looking for VLC, Audacity, or Spotify, you're following the same process. You click on Spotify, you click on the install button, and it downloads the Flatpak ref, which then opens with your software center and allows you to install the Flatpak on your system, assuming that you have, uh, assuming that you have uh, the ability to run Flatpaks on your operating system. But I, I think it's going to do a couple of things. I think the first thing is it's going to make app discovery and app exploration a lot better. The other thing I'm really excited about is the verified developer tag. So this is a small little checkbox underneath the application. And so to the best of my understanding, what this means specifically is that the original developer or somebody hired by the original developer is the person pushing the software up to Flathub. And that means that you, in theory, should be able to trust that software more than just somebody took something off of GitHub and put it up there, and maybe the app developer doesn't even know it's up on Flathub or it's available as a flat pack, but somebody just wanted it to be there. That's good. That's helpful because it allows people to install things in a standard way, but it's not so ideal when it comes to uh, making sure that you have a, a, a secure chain from the time that the developer writes the code till the time that it gets installed on your system. Steve, have you, I suppose you're more of a install it from the command line kind of guy, but have you looked at the new flathub.org and what are your thoughts? I have, I think it's, I think it's neat. I like, I like the look of things, but like you said, I'm a lot more likely to just do a, uh, like a flat pack install command than I am to go to the UI. Mm -hmm. That might change as I get used to it because partly because um, the GNOME Foundation has kind of changed my mind on this because I go to their like extensions.gnome.org to get my GNOME extensions. And so I could see showing my wife and be like, this is just how you go get software now. Yeah. Um, I could see that being very a very useful thing, especially because we've started to adopt uh, endless OS in other places here. And so it would just be useful to have the same applications across Flathub all over the place. Absolutely. You know, the thing is, I'm I'm not, I'm not above Flatpak install and whatever it is I'm looking for, but it doesn't provide an opportunity for me to discover software, right? So when they first did their redesign of the page and I went here and I looked, I was on the page for less than five minutes and I came across three or four pieces of software that I'm like, well, gee, that looks really cool. I'm kind of irritated that I wasn't aware that was on here. Yeah, I think the discovery is definitely, that was one of the things that we really liked about Endless was just sitting and scrolling through the, uh, all of the software that's available that we didn't know was out there. Yeah, yeah, 100%. The other thing that occurs to me is, so I'm looking at Strawberry Music Player. I can, I can click on the link and send a link to flathub.org slash app slash Strawberry Music Player to somebody else and say, 
here's the app that would fit all in this application or in this use case, and then that person is able to run it. And if you have the integration into your software center, you can just click on the little blue install link and get that Flatpak ref. If you don't have that, you have the opportunity to just run the Flatpak install command. They give you all those commands at the very bottom. So either way, you have the option of getting it installed. So I just, I don't have enough good things to say about this. I think this is fantastic, and I'm excited to see. It seems like more and more developers that I talk to and more and more people that are doing distro maintaining are moving towards Flatpak. So excited to see that. We'll have all of this available to you in the show notes podcast dot com. And Flatpak apparently has a matrix chat, matrix.to slash Flatpak, colon matrix.org. So you can check all of that out. Atlas OS. You can learn more at atlasos.net. Windows is slow, clunky, and unreliable. Atlas brings life back into your Windows system designed to maximize performance, minimize latency, and you'll get an experience that is smoother and more responsive Windows with higher frame rates than using standard Windows. So my appeal to this is I have a number of clients that end up using Windows for one particular purpose or another, and everybody has been slightly frustrated at one point or another when like you have a Windows 10 box that you can't disable updates on. And so it just at some point during the day just installs updates and restarts. And I think, Steve, you said you had a similar experience to where a client shipped you a computer and were like, you have to use this Windows machine. But every so often you would just be unavailable for a meeting or unavailable to do the work you were supposed to do because Windows was in the middle of updating or restarting. Yeah, it does that all the time. It's kind of annoying. It did it to me this morning, like 830 I'm just starting to get going for the day, and uh, it's just like, yo, I'm shutting down, and that was the end of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, it, then. It's annoying when you're a consultant and you're given a laptop to work. It is a absolute deal breaker when you're a radio station and you rely on a particular machine for millions of dollars worth of revenue to come in. You can't have the machine just restart and take the station off of the air, and it's a huge problem. And so as we've kind of looked at uh, different solutions... Actually, it was Sleuth that brought this one to my attention, but Atlas, atlasos.net. I'm not exactly sure why they call it an operating system, because if truth be told, it's really a collection of bat scripts that run on your Windows box. So if you're familiar with Tron, I would equate it more similar to the Tron collection of scripts than I would an actual operating system. But at the end of the day, I think this is absolutely stellar. The only thing I would say, or the only word of caution I would have is just keep in mind that a big part of this is disabling a bunch of the Windows security features. I know that probably sounds like some one of an oxymoron to you, but be aware that if you're disabling Atlas OS and all the security features, things like Bit, Bitdefender and Windows uh, security features and all the rest of it, you'll have to supply your own solutions to avoid getting popped. Again, I don't know that there's anybody out there that's like, I need the best, most secure operating system in the world. I'm going with, uh, let's see here, Windows 11. That seems good. So that I get it. But at the same time, like if you're going to go through and run this script that's going to disable all that stuff, make sure that you take the proper precautions. Nextcloud Memories. It's an add-on for Nextcloud. Now, Nextcloud has a native photo app in it, and the photo app is not bad. It's okay. It, I, Steve, is, are, is your family still using Nextcloud to back up all their photos, and are you using the native photo app? Uh, yes, and sort of. We generally don't. Uh, we use the phone itself to actually flip back through the pictures most of the time. Okay. So the, the Photos app is 
okay, but it is not really true competition to Google Photos. And so when you're trying to pull somebody off of Google Photos, they're going to look for things like, well, they want the ability to review those photos anywhere they are. They want the ability to do tagging. They want the photos to be grouped by people or objects or be able to recognize things or do face recognition or be able to create albums and all the rest of that. And so uh, the native Photos app inside of Nextcloud doesn't do all of that right off of the bat. However, there's an add-on to Nextcloud called Memories, and Memories is what they call a batteries-included photo management solution that use, uses Nextcloud with advanced features. It does things like timeline sorting, the ability to rewind to any place in the past to go look at photos from that time, AI tagging, albums, the ability to do external link sharing, and mobile support so you can do all of this from your phone app. You can learn more at apps.nextcloud.com slash app slash memories. We'll have a link for you in the show notes of podcast on asknoahshow.com. I want to give a quick mention to, to Image, which is I-M-M-I-C-H, and Libra Photos, both of which we'll have available for you in the links at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Full disclaimer, I'm not sure if we've tried this with Libra Photos, but at least one of the guys on our team at UltaSpeed tried Image and comparing it in a one-to-one uh, with Google Photos, he said it was it was okay, but it just didn't have all of the features that Google Photos has. He's looked at memories and said, man, this just about ticks every box. And so he's in the process of deploying it. So if you're trying to de-Googleify yourself and you're looking for a good photo management software, you might consider memories from Nextcloud. In a free society, people should not have their private correspondence constantly examined. But U.S. lawmakers are doing exactly that. The Earn It Act is back for the third time. And the right to a private conversation without the government looking over your shoulder is once again at risk. So for the third time, senators are attempting to pass the Earn It Act as Senate Bill 1207, a law that could lead to suspicionless scans of every online message, photo and hosted file. So the brief recap of Section 230 is when you start a website, you are not responsible for the content of that website if you are not the one publishing that content. So that is to say Facebook is not responsible for the content that its users post on Facebook. Twitter is not responsible for the content that Twitter users post on Twitter. There has been an argument made, and I understand where people are coming from, that, well, if a website gets to decide what can be published and what can't be published, they are acting as the editor. Therefore, they should be responsible for the content. I understand that argument. I get it. But at the same time, I would submit to you respectfully that if there's no possible way that a site has the ability to monitor everything that's posted on their platform. And so they can do a fairly decent job and moderators help and reporting content helps. But at the end of the day, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for them to keep an eye on absolutely everything somebody publishes on their site. And so in response to that, you have to start asking what what can what can we do about that or what should we do about that? The problem is we cannot seem to get ahead of illicit content. People are engaging in illicit content and storing that on their devices. And to be, to be honest with you, there is a part of me that feels a bit like people are technologically ignorant insofar as if you're if you're dealing in illicit content it's amazing to me that people upload that content to their cloud accounts but they do and at record number to the point that the FBI and law enforcement is unable to keep up and so over time they've been putting pressure on companies to say hey 
we want to remove Section 230. We no longer want immunity for you as the platform host. We want you to be responsible for all of the content. Well, the obvious technical implication, if the Section 230 protections are removed, is that the company then has to monitor every single piece of content that goes up. Well, how do you do that? You don't have enough moderators. You don't have enough staff. You don't have enough manpower to make that happen. So what do you do? You turn to automation. You turn to automatic scanning of images. You you turn to databases that identify uh, offensive material, and then you match the material that somebody has up against up against the uh, uh, a, a database of known um, unwanted material. The problem that that poses to those of us who care about privacy and freedom on the internet is. Today, they're worried about the kind of objectionable content that all of us can probably get on the same page and say, we don't like that. We don't think anybody should have that. We all agree that people who do that should be buried underneath the prison and that they're terrible human beings and, and they're exploiting people who are defenseless. We can all agree on that. And so I don't necessarily object to the reason or the, the, the stated mission that they're trying to achieve with the Earn it Act. My problem is twofold. The first is the only way to do that is to scan all of the material, both the stuff that isn't offensive and the stuff that is offensive, and then verify it against something that checks to see if offensive or illicit material is there. But the second problem, and this is the greater one, all that is is an algorithm change. So today it's the stuff that we all agree on. What happens when it's tomorrow and it's something that we disagree on, where it's something that I think I should have the right to say, or I think it is something that I should have the right to own, or I think it is something I should have the right to share because it's important to humanity or it's important to me or it's it's a deep core value of mine to have this material and to share it. And if we're scanning all of this and getting to a place where the government just says, we are going to put best practices in place. And so an unelected government commission that is going to be stacked with law enforcement personnel and tasked with creating best practices, that is to say, you tell us what we should be looking for and how we should do it, then anybody who runs an internet site or an app has to follow what these best practices are. And if they don't follow what the best practices are, they become responsible for the content that's put out there. I think this is hugely problematic, absolutely hugely problematic. You saw a massive pushback with this from Apple. First, Apple said they were going to roll out a system that would scan all of the photos that were on your phone. Whether or not you uploaded them to iCloud, it was going to scan all of the photos that and videos that were on the phone and match them against objectionable material. If objectionable material was found, they forward that onto law enforcement. Law enforcement goes, gets a search warrant. Search warrant comes, they search your phone, and they're able to take that. And from there, it, it, you know, they, they try and prosecute the case. People went ballistic. They pushed back like nobody's business. And in response, Apple backed down. Apple, back in the 80s, had this big push for we are not Big Brother and that this is what you should fear from, uh, you know, from the world and why Apple is fighting against this and you're, they're your technological ally and all the rest of it. So it was kind of a 180 degree about face that Apple would support this sort of technology or this sort of idea. And after the pushback, Apple eventually backed down, and that was kind of the end of the Internet Act, and we hadn't really heard about it for a little over a year. 
but now it's back. So this comes hot on the heels of the Restrict Act, which comes hot on the heels of the Data Act. What you're seeing is a non-stop barrage for the government to gain more technological control over a an area of society that, they, quite frankly, they have completely lost control over. They find out that documents and material have been leaked on Telegram when everybody else in the Telegram group figures it out. They have found out that they're powerless to stop people from using end-to-end encryption in order to be able to conduct a private conversation. And it's not just the U.S. government that's having that problem. It's governments all over the world. And they're trying to find ways to stop people from using technology and leveraging it to their advantage to hold something over government. You watch this happen in China. They were using iPhones with AirDrop, and it, they weren't able to share media and pictures and documents and files over traditional internet connections. And so they started using AirDrop to locally pass files as they're sitting in, in, in China to share videos and photos of human rights violations. And so these technological tools are becoming huge power, they're force multipliers for the people that are boots on the ground. And what terrifies me about the Earn It Act and the Data Act and the Restrict Act is all of these things are designed to be extraordinarily vague as they are worded. They're designed to be extraordinarily broad so that the only person that can interpret them is the government or attorneys for the government. And it's designed to be sweeping to to cast a wide net to catch everything, and then they can sort it out later. And this is, of course, this is the very antithesis of everything I've said since day one on the show. Technology should exist to empower the users, not an organization, not a corporation, not a government, not an entity, the user, the end user, the person, the individual. We are not a collective. We are all individuals. We all have our own thoughts. We all have our own nuanced ideas. And that largely is what allows the the, the best of society to flourish is when we can embrace differences. And to me, this works entirely against that because it puts everybody in the same boat and comes up with a standard for everybody to follow. And then it becomes, well, it's not really my device anymore. It's the, the device that I'm allowed to use that I upload my content in, and then somebody tells me if that content is permissible. Steve, any thoughts on the Earn It Act? Oh, I think this is a better topic for the uh, critical thought. <laughs> I, have, I have so many thoughts that I, I don't think we want to get into here because they, they evolved too much into politics, and, and uh, I would have a hard time structuring my thoughts specifically around, well, not sounding like a crazy political activist. Okay. Well, I'll stay away from the politics of it, but, you know, the, the, the technical aspect is is this, right? The idea is they're wanting to do client-side scanning. And so the problem with client-side scanning is that it takes all of the information straight from user devices and before a message is even has a chance to be encrypted and sends it straight to the police. One of the things that they have to do, they have to technologically do in order to make that feasible is the client-side scanning has to circumvent the encryption. And so when you decrypt your device, obviously the device stores the encryption key in memory. This is what they're using to get access to, to, uh, to that material. To me, the answer here, and I said this back in the San Bernardino shooter, everybody was so gung-ho about Apple, quote-unquote, standing up to the FBI by refusing to lock that to unlock his iPhone. So all Apple had to do if they really wanted to is push an update out that says, hey, we removed the, you know, whatever, the 10 
10 tries and you lock out. And, and, and as long as they can get that phone to connect to the Internet somehow, they can push an update. And because Apple signing key is on that device, they can push software onto that phone and change the way the phone operates. So what the FBI did was they pulled the chip out and just tried over and over and over and over again until, you know, they burned through a chip, put a new one in, try again, burn through the chip, put a new one in. They just kept doing that until they were able to get access to the phone. But because the information was locally encrypted, they had to attack the device itself. One of the things that I think is so powerful about things like Element and things like Signal, all of these things, or Proton Mail, for example, all of these things rely on client-side encryption. And so they don't, the, the, the private key sits with the user. So even the person operating the internet site or the service doesn't have access to those messages. If the Earn It Act passes, in order to be compliant with the Earn It Act, these companies are going to have to have local access to messages, to client-side messages. And so this idea that, you know, Facebook, I think, advertises that their messenger service uses or you can in, enable end-to-end encryption. I think WhatsApp advertises that you can use end-to-end encryption. Telegram, for example, you can use end-to-end encryption. Again, I venture to say it's kind of useless because the vast majority of people out there that are using those things like Telegram just have all of their chats as a wide open text file sitting on some Telegram server and largely people just don't care about privacy. But those the, the they at least have the option to turn those things on. If the Earn It Act passes and companies are required to be able to scan for material, you're no longer going to be able to use true end-to-end encryption. You can't because by the very definition of end-to-end encryption, it means only the client device and the other client receiving device have the private decryption keys. If that's true, then the middleman, the person passing back and forth the material, has no way to see what's inside of the encrypted message. So the only way around that is to allow the site, allow the operator, allow the platform access to those private encrypted messages. And so I, I, I have seen a couple of the different sites that have ways to get into encrypted messages. So they're end to end until the company needs to see into them and then they have a way to undo that or they have a way to, to they have their own private keys that they're able to get the content of those messages that is going to become standard and to a degree i question what the enforcement mechanism is for this if you go and tell element for example hey we now need access to all of these messages because that is part of the law and so you have to do that how exactly do you go about technologically implementing that what are you going to push a change to all of this open source software? Who do you come after? There's not the, 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 the there is a foundation that publishes a specification. There are, there are companies that make money off of selling the product, but at the end of the day, all of the code is open and out in the middle of uh, out, out in the internet. So everybody can see what's happening under the hood. How then do you convince somebody to place a change on said software that the end users of the software don't want? And I would also add, what is to stop the criminal element from saying, okay, so you approached Vector and you told them, hey, y'all are going to implement a thing and push a thing out to your software so that it uploads the private keys so that if we ever need to get access to those messages that we can, otherwise you're involved. And, and let's just say for the example, I don't think Matthew would do this, but let's just say for the sake of argument, he says, yeah, all right, well, that's what we have to do. It's what we have to do. What is to stop the criminal element then from d- forking the software? getting an exact copy of it, removing the thing that allows them to upload those keys, hosting one's own matrix server, 
and going right back to doing whatever it was you were doing beforehand. I mean, there, the, 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 there, there doesn't appear to be a good enforcement mechanism. Essentially, what you're doing is you're skating to the lowest common denominator. All of the people that pull out their Google phone or their iPhone and take and take explicit photos that are illegal and upload them into a place that they can be scanned. Those are the easy. That's the, That's you know, that's a low hanging fruit. And to an extent, fine. I mean, not OK with it by any stretch of the imagination, but fine. I'll park that for a moment. So they're able to do that. How then do you, when people actually try to engage their brain and and leverage these tools, how are you going to stop them? And I don't think there's a good answer to that. And it's one of my problems with legislation of technology. I would be all on board with having discussions about how to best legislate technology and, and how to provide laws and infrastructure around them. But is it really too much to ask that the people that make the laws understand the technology, understand the laws and understand the interaction between the legal system and the technology. Because when I read these acts and when I read when I read what they're attempting to accomplish and then I read the process by which they're going about trying to accomplish it, we don't arrive at the same conclusion. We don't arrive as this being actionable and accountable, which is what they say this is supposed to do. A Facebook study found 75% of messages flagged by its scanning system designed to detect abusive material were not malicious. That included messages like bad jokes and memes. So what that's saying is 75% of the time when they went into your messages and scanned your private content in order to find something that you were doing wrong, thought you were doing something wrong, escalated it to people who then humans look through your account and look through your private messages and private photos and private communication to determine if you were doing something wrong. Three out of four times, there's nothing wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. They got it wrong. Now, again, I you can make the argument like over time, the technology will get better. No, it's going to it'll improve and we'll design AI and, and jet GPT will take over. OK, I got it. I got it. But at the same time, You're asking people or really telling people that you're going to put this kind of thing into practice without even really any proof that it does what you say it does. We can't even get that far. So if it wasn't obvious to you, highly against, highly against the Earned Act. It's an absolute terrible idea. This maybe scares me more than the Restrict Act or the uh, Data Act, at least with the Restrict Act and the Data Act, you're talking about not using service products or services from other countries. I think it's too vague. I think it's too broad. I think all the rest of that. But at the end of the day, at least we're talking about other platforms, you know, in other countries. This applies to literally every website host, every website operator. If you're running a a site of any size, you're quickly going to lose the opportunity to moderate it. Once you lose the opportunity to moderate it, you will start to take on the responsibility if Section 230 goes away. Do not let them do this. Take action. Go to EFF.org. We'll have the link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Click on the Take Action link. Type in your street address and your zip code. It'll find your representatives. It has a pre-canned statement. I always recommend that you modify that statement just a little bit. Make it your own. If your representative gets, you know, 300 things of the exact same text blurb, they pay less attention to that than if it appears that it's coming from a legitimate constituent and you've put time and thought into writing things. Um, so make it your own. But all the, the Earn It Act is asking all 50 states to regulate Internet services. And the idea is to adopt these best 
practices as set by a federal commission stacked with law enforcement agencies. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea because it won't work. It's a bad idea because it infringes on privacy. It's a bad idea because it drives the underground world further underground and ensnares law-abiding, legitimate users who are doing absolutely nothing wrong with faulty algorithms. So don't pass the Earned Act. It's a really bad idea. Again, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624, the number to join us. You can call or text that same number. Email us live at knoxradio.com. The best laptop you've never heard of. We'll have a link for you at, at uh, podcast.asknoahshow.com, but it's called the Aon S1, A-O-N-S-1. And it's made by a company called Malibu, which is a company you've probably never heard of. And this laptop probably isn't on your radar, but it might, it, maybe it should be because they produce a high-performance custom Linux laptop specifically designed for developers and content creators. The company also produces mobile workstations designed for engineers, scientists, video editors, and 3D modelers, as well as animators, uh, as well as mobile servers for enterprise applications. And so the basic specs on this thing uh, is a 12th gen i7, 14 cores, 20 threads, up to 64 gigabytes of RAM. It has a dedicated NVIDIA GT or RTX rather 3050 Ti 14-inch screen with 2080 by 1800, one terabyte of storage, a Thunderbolt port, has HDMI, USB, and audio jacks as well as a DC in. On the networking side, it has a dual band wireless uh, Wi-Fi 6E and an embedded six cell battery with up to 99 watt hours of battery. It ships by default with Ubuntu 2204. So this is not your, this is not your ultrabook. This is not your ultralight. It's designed for doing work. It's designed to get work done. But at, I think they're starting at, I think I saw 1600 bucks or something like that. And it goes up to like $2,300 a really solid buy. Uh, being perfectly honest, if you handed me $2,000 and I had my choice, System76 just refreshed their lineup, and so they have all new laptops out there, and I think if I were... I think if I were spending my money, I would put $1,000 towards System76 just in the way of they've been around a lot longer. They're a US-based company. The support is absolutely unbelievable, and they're all Linux nerds to the hilt. So for those reasons, I probably would get the System76 over this one, but at $1,500, bucks, starts at 50, uh, sorry, it, it uh, starts at 1573 and it goes up to $2,083. It's a really solid machine, particularly if you're looking for a lightweight, very powerful machine. Steve, you've kind of gone the opposite direction. You, you The last laptop you bought, you bought one with a dedicated graphics card and all the rest of it. You were telling me last time, a lot of times, just the regular Ultrabook seems to get most of the things that you want it to do done. Well, especially now that I have a Steam Deck that um, kind of offloads a bunch of that stuff. Mm. Because I was on the road a lot with Red Hat, um, and I probably will get back to that, having access to playing games as a way to come down after a stressful client engagement was kind of one of the things that I really relied on. So the yeah. dedicated GPU was a thing for me. Uh, but... I probably will carry my Steam Deck around with me. Um, it is my preferred gaming platform even now that, you know, I have a very nice desktop. I've got a, mm -hmm. an AMD 8-core, eight, eight 16-thread thing with, I don't know, 128 gigs of RAM, and I still play on my Steam Deck. <laughs> so, so yeah, I probably am going to be looking for battery life and portability in my next laptop just because the Steam Deck 
uh, offloads the the need for me to have a dedicated graphics card. I walked into my son and he was playing uh, Killing Floor with my sister. And he's playing on his desktop and I look over and his Steam Deck is sitting right next to him. And I said, why? Because his desktop doesn't nearly have, it's it's an older machine, so it's not nearly the, the, the power that a Steam Deck. And I asked him, I was like, what are you doing with the Steam Deck and why play the game on the desktop? And he's like, yeah, I don't know. It is kind of backwards, but I'm using I I'm I'm in a Jitsi chat or Jitsi conference call on the Steam Deck, and then I'm using the desktop to play the game. I thought seems a little backwards. I feel like I'd use the game machine to play the game, and I might use the seven year old desktop to 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 do the the web conference. But be that as it may, it's a it's a cool little device, and desktop mode makes it really usable for a lot of things. I like it a lot. Um, you know what? It's one of those things that you can't really appreciate until you actually invest some time in it but mm. my wife and I we like to play games together but ultimately after being in my office 10 hours a day uh, from about seven in the morning right through by the time that she's done putting the kids down to bed and all the rest of that I just don't want to be in my office so yeah. we we stopped playing games for a long time but now that we have the we both have steam decks we go sit on the bed or out on the furniture and go look outside in the patio wherever we are it's been really freeing, and I, I would have underestimated that myself if I hadn't experienced that. Exactly what you described is why I try not to work from home. Is I don't I don't want to get burned out in my lab. My lab is my place of fun, so I would hate to get to get burned out. Speaking of devices, I placed an order for my Pine Tab, so I have an ARM Pine Tab on the way. The version two comes with the keyboard. Uh, I'm going to throw Kitty Plasma Mobile on there, post-market OS, and my first, my, first, my first attempt with it is going to be if I can get it to use as a chart display for doing drums. I've talked about that. In fact, I was talking with Sunjam in the Geek Lab at geeklab.ninja, and he's kind of a music nerd uh, with a heck of a lot more experience than I have. And I was saying, you know, this is kind of what I'm trying to solve, and this is what I'm kind of trying to do. And at the end of the day, wound up with the Pine Tab. So I'm told that it will ship and arrive sometime in May. So look for an update as that comes closer. Hey, the music at our ears means we're out of time. We'd love to have you join us live. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. You can get the latest by following us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. You can follow the show at AskNoahShow. The show continues next Tuesday night at 6 p.m. AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week. <laughs>